Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Good morning, Wildwood. Happy Easter to everyone. Um, there's a traditional greeting at Easter time uh, that goes something like this. Christians have greeted each other this way on Easter for centuries. And it is where someone will say, he is risen, and the response is, he is risen indeed. What, you've heard this before. This is wonderful. <laughs> hey, let's try that again. For those who don't know, he is risen, he is risen indeed. He is risen. Amen. Hey, we have the privilege of looking into God's Word today and seeing the historical events that let us know about this resurrection and not just know about it historically, but to make sense of it, what it does for us, what God is offering to us through the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to look at that together today. But before we do that, I want to just share with you some thoughts and and ask you a few questions, and that is this. Have you ever had an experience where you witnessed a change that was so dramatic that it caused you to say, what happened? You saw someone go from here to there, and and you hadn't seen them in a while. You see this transformation, and you're like, wait a minute, time out. What happened in your life to institute that change. I'll give you an example while you're, you're thinking about your own life for a moment. I'll give you an example from mine. I've got two nieces who live in Little Rock, and because of the distance, I don't have a chance to see them in person as often as I'd like. So we follow them via Facebook and, and see pictures, and you know we talk on holidays and see them and things, but I don't get to see them as often as we get to see pictures of them. And when you see pictures of your nieces and nephews growing up, these weird things happen where you remember them as little children and then you look and you see a picture on Facebook and they're in a long, long formal dress with makeup on going to a cotillion ball. And you're like, what happened? And then the next picture, she's driving a car. And I'm like, what happened? Or maybe I'll give you another example from my life. Maybe I have some friends that haven't seen me since college and then I run into them out in the city, and and how how do I how do I explain this? I, I'm a little bigger than I was then, and they see me and they go, "What happened? What happened?" Or maybe it's it's not some changes in those areas. Maybe it's spiritual changes. You have a friend um, that you haven't seen in a while, and the last time you saw them or talked to them, their life was headed diametrically opposed to the things of God. They were rebelling against. The Lord. They were involved in addiction and, and, and all kinds of things, running away from him. And then you, you run into them sometime later and they're following Christ and you, you ask the same question, what happened? What happened? Well, if you don't know anyone who has had that kind of a life change, let me just introduce you to a room full of people who have had our lives dramatically changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. We gather here today at the foot of a cross and in light of an empty tomb and we remember what God has done for us and what he is offering to us. And today I want us to to look a little more in depth at a transformation that occurred in one individual's life and that individual is the Apostle Peter. And as we see his life and the transformation that took place in his life, we can find hope and encouragement for us and the transformation we want to see happen in our lives as well. 
And so we're going to look at that today from the Gospel of Mark, and we will begin in chapter 14. And so I'd invite you to take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 14. Now, like any story of transformation, there's really three parts to it, right? There's a before part, and then there is an after part, and then there is what happened in between. And as we look at Peter's story and draw strength from it for our stories, we're going to follow a similar pattern, the before, the after, and the in-between. Let's begin with the before the before of the Apostle Peter's life. Now, we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 14, but really to make good sense of this, we need to know what has happened up to this point. And what had happened up to this point was that Jesus had come into this world, the Son of God, born of the Virgin in Bethlehem. And Jesus had lived a perfect life, and after about 30 years of living a life in perfect obedience to his heavenly father and in perfect obedience to his earthly father and parents and living in society and growing, as Luke would tell us, in in stature and in wisdom, as Jesus grows up on the earth for 30 years, after 30 years, he begins a public ministry. And that ministry is full of miracles that he does, verifying his identity as the Son of God. And it's full of of teaching with authority that points people to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who had come to be the Savior of the world. And after three years of public ministry that involved miracles and had involved teaching and had involved the collection of a number of followers or disciples, of which one was Peter, after all of that time, it was, it was the appropriate time, we saw this last Sunday, for Jesus to go and to lay his life down as a sacrifice for sins, to offer his life as a substitute for your sins and for mine. And those events, events began to unfold as Jesus gathered in a garden and prayed with his disciples. And Judas betrayed Jesus, and and a mob goes out to arrest Jesus. And as they show up to arrest Jesus as as a a rejection of the Jewish leaders of Jesus as the Messiah, as they arrest him, Jesus' followers take off. They run away. An example of that is found in Mark chapter 14, verses 51 and 52. It, It says, a young man followed Jesus and with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And so they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked. Now that's kind of a funny verse, but here's the picture. It's a reminder of what happened to the followers of Christ when Jesus was arrested. They took off as fast as they could. They left their clothes and they left their Savior and they took off all but Peter. Peter's before story doesn't involve him running away naked when they come to arrest Christ. It involves Peter following behind the mob as they take Jesus from the garden to the courtyard of the high priest's home where he's going to stand trial. Now, Peter follows along at a distance, but he keeps a safe distance, and he hopes to remain anonymous. And in Jesus' time of need, Peter begins to deny Christ. We're familiar with this story. It's found in Mark 14, beginning in verse 66. It says, As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. 
And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, said, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. When we think about the before story for Peter, this is one of the dominant little scenes, isn't it? When we think of Peter, we remember his denial of Jesus three times when Jesus most needed him. Not only did, did Peter deny Jesus, but he denied him three times. Not only did he deny him three times, but he denied him with a curse upon himself. Not only did he deny him with a curse, but he denied him while his, his friend who could really use a witness, could really use a friend, was on the other side of the wall, and Peter abandoned him. He denied him. He walked away. And not only did he do all of those things, but he did it even after Jesus had given him as clear a warning as he could give. Jesus said to Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. Peter hears that, goes out and denies Christ three times. Now, can you identify with Peter? Can you identify with his before story? I can. Don't you have some things in your life that you look back on that you regret? Don't you have some things that you have done or continue to do or maybe have continued to do right up until the time that you came here today that you hope nobody knows about, that you hope nobody finds out about, sin that you've committed against a holy and a perfect God? Can't we identify with Peter in that way? Maybe it's, it's not just those things. Maybe it also includes times when we've walked away from Christ at a, at a time where we're set up to talk to a friend about Jesus. We, we missed an opportunity. We, we failed to share the truth about Jesus even though somebody was asking because we were afraid of what they might think of us or what it might do to the relationship or we were afraid of being rejected in some way. Has that ever happened to anybody in this room besides me? See, we can relate, can't we, to Peter's failure. We can relate to this part of his story. And you know what's interesting? As I read this and I, I hear that Jesus tied his rejection to a rooster crowing, you ever wonder what that was all about? Well, think about this. How often does a rooster crow? At least twice, right? Every day. Can you imagine as Peter lived out the rest of his days every day hearing roosters crow, reminders to him of the sin that he had committed? Reminders to him of his failure. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? So we can relate to that too, can't we? Those of us in this room, those who have sinned, those who can relate to Peter, we drive by certain spots in town and we remember the sin that we committed there, don't we? We go home and we visit friends and family and we remember the things from our past. We, we, we see a note that's somewhere, somehow stuffed in the back of a drawer, and we remember what's going on. See, we can relate to Peter. We have a before also. 
takes just a moment, just a second to take us back there. That's Peter's before. We can relate. What about his after? What happened to Peter? Well, a number of things. When we look at Peter's after, it's a number of the other things that were familiar about Peter's life. And really, we could, we could look at them in the book of Acts and kind of line them up beginning in, in chapter 2, a number of things that happened after this point in Peter's life. The first one we could see him do is we could see him preaching at Pentecost. Peter stands up in the streets of Jerusalem just 50 days after the Passover holiday when Jesus was killed. He, he stands up and he, he preaches this powerful message pointing people to Christ. We can relate to Peter in, in his rejection of Christ, but can we relate to this? I mean, this is amazing. Peter stands up and he preaches, and, and listen to what he says. He says, men of Israel, chapter 2, verse 22, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was impossible for him to be held by it. On these same streets, he had denied Christ, but the after, he preaches and points people to them, and thousands respond in faith. Peter preached at Pentecost, but not only did he preach at Pentecost, but he also performed miracles on the streets of this city. Chapter 3 of the book of Acts lets us know one such event. It says here, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, about the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive the alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have to give to you, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. He had denied Christ in the before, but in the after, in the name of Christ, he Heals a man. What happened? He's preaching. He's, he's healing. A third thing we see is in chapter 4 of Acts. We see Peter giving a defense, presenting a defense about Jesus before the very same council, the very same leaders, the, the high priests and the, the rulers who he had cowered from just days earlier. Now Peter gives a, a dramatic defense in front of them. It says in verse 5 and following, it says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes, they gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were, who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The same men that he cowered from, days later he gives this defense to. What happened to Peter? Now, on this Sunday in in Norman, Oklahoma, on the 27th of March, following the 26th of March, I cannot give you just three. I must give you a final fourth. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. No, I must give you a final fourth, a fourth demonstration of the change that occurred in, in, Peter's, in Peter's life. And that is just the authoring of the books of First and Second Peter. The authoring of the books of First and Second Peter. What happened in the life of this man that went from rejecting Christ to preaching and performing miracles and presenting defenses and, and writing scripture? What happened? And what we ought to be asking ourselves is not just what happened in his life, but if Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then you and I should also be asking the question, is what happened to him, is it possible that it could happen to me? Is it possible that I could find separation from my past and hope for my future? And when we ask the question, is it possible? What happened? We need to look to the between. What happened between the before and the after? And here's what we find. We, we might expect to see Peter enrolling in a, a, a program of some kind, a rehabilitation program. We might expect him to have to go through years and years of, of rehabilitation in different ways. But no, that's not the case. What happened between the before and the after is something way more dramatic, and that is this. Between Peter's past and his future stood a crucifixion and a resurrection. That's what made the difference. Between his past and his future stood a crucifixion and a resurrection. Now, the first thing that we see is that the resurrection of Jesus encouraged them and he encouraged all of the followers of Christ, but it encouraged Peter specifically. I want to look at Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 7, because these verses so beautifully demonstrate the reality of the historical event of the resurrection. Friends, I, I just came back, you were here last week, you heard this, I went to Israel last fall, and one of the stops in our trip to Israel was the area around the tomb where it is believed that Jesus was buried, and I went inside there, and guess what's there? Nothing. It is empty. It's a historical fact that Jesus is resurrected from the grave. I don't know if you've seen the movie Risen uh, that has come out this this season, but inside that movie, um, it talks about the 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 search for the body. In other words, they had an understanding, the Romans, and I think this is exactly the way it would have played out, that if they could just find the body of Jesus, it would stop the movement. It would stop the commotion. But they couldn't find it. Why? Because it was hid really well? No. Because Jesus was resurrected from the grave. And the resurrection of Jesus was an encouragement to all who follow Christ. 
Chapter 16, verse 1 says this. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. In entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they have laid him. But go, tell his disciples, and who? Peter. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Between the before and the after in Peter's life, the in-between was a resurrection, a crucifixion and a resurrection of Jesus. And that was greatly encouraging to him because think about this. Jesus made many promises. He made many what we would consider to be outlandish statements. He said, I'm God. That's a pretty outlandish statement. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It is only through me that you can connect to God. He said, if you believe in me, you can have your sins forgiven. Forgiven. He made these kinds of outlandish statements. And you know what? If Jesus was still lying in the, in the grave, we'd wonder which ones were true. Because Jesus also said that I will die on the cross and three days later I'll be raised from the dead. But when Jesus walked out of that tomb, it gives us historical proof that he was who he said he was and he will do what he says that he will do. That was an encouragement to Peter and it should be an encouragement to you and me as well. See, we live in a world, friends, where people are trying to market stuff to us all the time. It is not, you know, you can't go an hour without somebody making a promise to you about what something will do for you. This will change your life. You, it will be wonderful. It'll be great and all these kinds of things. And, you know, how often do the, the things that are marketed to us actually deliver on their promises? Not often, right? As we see our children go and buy toys that we tell them, don't buy that. It won't do what you think it's going to do, but they spend their money on it anyway. They bring it home and two hours later, it's broken. And we, we think, oh, poor child, one day you'll learn. And then we look around our house, the things that we bought, thinking it would bring us happiness. And three weeks or three months later, it's no longer delivering. It's what happens with stuff, right? We're used to people offering us promises that don't deliver. But the promises that Jesus makes, friends, always deliver. And the resurrection of Christ is proof of that. It's proof that he was who he said he was and he could deliver what he said he could deliver. Because of that, the resurrection should encourage us to trust in Christ, to believe that his death can be the payment that our sins deserve and that we can be united to God forever. We can be forgiven of our sins. We can have separation from our past as we move towards the future that God has called us to because the resurrection encourages us. But it's interesting, not only does the resurrection encourage us, but also we see that the resurrected Jesus educates. The resurrected Jesus educates. 
We should not forget that in Luke chapter 24, some of Jesus' endeavors after his resurrection are detailed. What did he do between the time that he walked out of the tomb and the time he ascended into heaven? Well, one of the things he did was he educated his disciples. And in the book of Luke chapter 24, some disciples are on a a walk towards the city of Emmaus and and Jesus shows up kind of cloaked and veiled to them and he begins engaging them in conversation. And eventually in that conversation, he begins to unpack an education about the scriptures. And at that time, we're talking about the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus begins to, to tell the followers of Christ how the truth of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Luke 24, 27 says it this way. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, speaking of the Old Testament, Jesus interpreted to them, the disciples, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The resurrected Jesus educates. He points back to himself using the word of God. You ever wondered why there's so much of the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament? In part, I think it's because of conversations like these that Jesus had with his followers. The resurrected Jesus was educating the disciples. There's at least 200 direct quotations of the Old Testament in the New, but when you consider allusions, I've seen the count as high as three or 4,000 allusions to the Old Testament found in the New. Where did that come from? It came from conversations like these where the resurrected Jesus pointed his disciples who would write the New Testament to the truth about Jesus found in his word. Here's where that's significant for us, friends. When we want to look at our before and think about the after, one of the things we need to do is we need to remember the, the reality of the resurrection, but we also need to remember that we can be educated by Jesus of the things of who he is and, and what he wants us to do. And that's found in the Word of God. We don't have to just read this book on Sunday or, or, or once, a, once a year or twice a year or only read the sections that directly talk about the resurrection, like Mark 16 that we read earlier. But we can read this entire book and see that it points us to the reality of a holy God and sinful people reconciled through the work of Jesus Christ. It's not a one-off. It's the main story. Therefore, why don't we read it? Why don't we read it? The resurrection encourages us. The resurrected Jesus educates us. The third thing that we see here, though, is that the resurrected Jesus empowers us. He empowers us. We see this in Acts chapter 2. One of the things that Jesus had said to his followers was he said, if I go away, I will send another to come to you. I will send the Spirit of God to come and and reside with you and empower you to be my witnesses and to live the life that I've called you to live. And that very thing that Jesus promised happened historically in Acts chapter 2. That's where it first begins. It says this, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit of God came 
to the followers of Christ and empowered them for the life that he had called them to live. Now, we read this, and there's things in there that, that sound wild to us, and you're wondering, am I going to answer those questions? Say, no, I'm not going to. Um, I'm not avoiding it, but it's just not the main point that I want you to see here, because I don't think it's even the main point of this passage. This is not about phenomena. It's about the power of God coming and resting with his people. In this instance, it allowed them to speak a language they had never learned, to communicate the gospel to others. But when we look at the rest of the New Testament, we see when the Spirit of God comes, it directs us into an understanding of God's truth, and it produces fruit in our lives, fruit like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the empowerment of the Spirit of God that comes into us and allows us to respond to the stimulus of our world in a different way than our flesh would want to respond. And because of the the Spirit of God that comes to empower us, given to us by the resurrected Christ, this Spirit of God comes upon us, we can respond differently than we would just on our own. See, if we're a follower of Christ, the Spirit of God is empowering us, but are we relying on its power? When we look at an addiction that we have and we say, you know what, I can't stop looking at that, I can't stop smoking that, I can't stop drinking that, I can't, I can't, I can't. What we're forgetting is that the Spirit of God has come to empower us. He's given us a spirit, but one of its fruits is of self-control. When we see a relationship and we say, I can't stop fighting this person, I can't stop being angry, I can't rest, I can't, I can't, I can't, we need to remember that one of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. We can't, but the Spirit can. The resurrected Jesus has sent to us his Spirit to empower us to the life that he has called us to live. See, the resurrection, it encourages us. The resurrected Jesus educates us. And the resurrected Jesus empowers us. Because of those things that that have come to us through the resurrection and have been given as gifts to us today, we can see the connection that we don't have to live in our before, but we can look forward to our after. Because, friends, in our lives, between our past, between our failure and our future, what stands in the middle? The crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection from the grave. And because of that, we can have the hope of all eternity. I'm going to invite the band to come. And as they prepare to lead us in a closing song, I want to just drive this home just a little bit more for us today. When we think about our before and our after, and we think about our life, think about the implications of the resurrection, I want to, I want to just, just ask you this. Most all of us in this room, we we know someone who has trusted in Christ in their life, but disease is ravaging their body, or disease has ravaged their body. And you know what? They may have gone before you into death, or they might be right on death's door as you gather here today. But here's what the resurrection tells us. Jesus was resurrected from the grave, and he promises a resurrection for those who have trusted in him as well, so that we would have a hope that when we see them again one day, they would not be ravaged by disease, but their bodies would be healed. And when that happens, we'll say, what happened? What's the answer? Crucifixion and the resurrection stand between the past and the future. We think about the loneliness that comes in this life with with divorce or abandonment from family or spouses and the sting that comes into our life when 
families are torn apart and, and there's people all over this room that are dealing with that kind of hurt, you feel alone. But in the midst of your, your loneliness, you know that you are going to be with God forever and he has ne- promised to never leave you and never forsake you so that you might have spiritual fruit and peace even in a world that is hostile. Somebody looks at you and goes, what happened? How can you be reacting this way? What do we say? Because of the crucifixion and the resurrection standing between the past and the future. Friends, we have, we have a hope. We have a hope. And in our past, there is sin. In our future, there's the hope of fellowship with God. What stands in the middle is the death and the resurrection of Christ. Are you trusting in that today for your eternity? Father, I I thank you for today. I pray for my friends who are here. I pray, Father, for those of us who have trusted in you at some point in the past that today we'd be reminded of the power and the hope of the resurrection and we would, we would never wonder, Father, if there is a hope for us because the resurrection has demonstrated it. But Father, for those who are here today who have never placed their faith and their trust in Christ, that Father, today they might feel freedom from their past as they look to the future that you are offering to provide them, that they would be trusting in the in-between in the person and the work of Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And as they trust in that, that you might cleanse their hearts and walk with you in faith. Father, there's nothing that we need to do to prepare for this moment other than recognize who Christ is and lay our lives before him. And right now at our seats, any who you are calling, I pray that they would have the step of faith to begin to follow you. We gather today at the foot of a cross and next to an empty tomb, celebrating that Christ is risen.